Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Thousands of former members of the Islamic State are now being held in squalid, overcrowded camps in northeast Syria. Camps which are far from secure. It's out of control. They don't know exactly how many people they think they've got there. I think they've got about 64,000. Just under 10,000 of those are foreigners. You want them to stay getting radicalised in that dump. What should we do with them? The Supreme Court in London is now deliberating on whether Shamima Begum the former Bethnal Green girl who became a jihadi bride at the age of 15 should be allowed to return to Britain to fight for her citizenship. Shamima Begum is seeking to challenge the government's decision to revoke her British citizenship. Lawyers for the Home Office argued there would be significant national security risk. How is the rest of Europe coping with the same problem? Are they bringing foreign fighters back or leaving them in Syria? And what do they do with them if they do return? The dialogue is never about trying to prove the individual wrong in terms of how they think, what they think. In part three, we looked at how de-radicalisation works in Britain and the times when it doesn't. Everyone's worst nightmare is that somebody that you certify as de-radicalised then goes on to commit a terrorist attack because that would be on your conscience. How are they coping with the same challenges in Austria... Denmark and France. And are there lessons that we can learn from them? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Bring Me Home, Part 4. Lessons from Europe. For Britain, Europe and America... The war against Islamic State was fought on the front line alongside the Kurds. Kurdish armed militia on the front line in Syria. Here, near Sarakani, they've been leading the ground offensive against Islamic State. So the world was stunned when President Trump decided to withdraw American troops and leave the Kurds to fend for themselves. Now, the Kurds are fighting for their land, just so you understand. They're fighting for their land. And as somebody wrote in a very, very powerful article today, they didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy, as an example. Not for the first time in history, the Kurds had been betrayed. U.S. forces left the northeast Syrian town of Tal Tamar under the cover of darkness 
but protesters with signs blocked the convoys. One read, thanks for U.S. people, but Trump betrayed us. The Kurds had been abandoned, left to fight Turkish attacks whilst trying to deal with thousands of former ISIS fighters and their families. If Europe can't decide what to do with the foreign fighters who went to join Islamic State, the problem is even more pressing for the Kurds, who are struggling to contain them. It's the same Kurdish group that effectively defeated ISIS on the battlefield, albeit with the assistance of Western troops and Western military. That's Arthur Snell, a man well-versed in the subject of this week's series. A decade ago, he was... Head of the Foreign Office's counter-radicalisation programme, known at that time as Prevent. He now runs a business intelligence company. So there's two points to make here. One is that we in the West owe those Kurdish fighters and the wider Kurdish movement a huge debt of gratitude because they effectively are the people who were in the end defeated ISIS. And secondly, those people have been greater victims of ISIS violence than almost any other group in the Middle East. So if we're going to say, well, it's very inconvenient to repatriate some British or Belgian or whatever who's embraced ISIS, so we're just going to leave them there... One is it, it's showing a sort of immense ingratitude to the Kurds, but it's also actually neglecting to recognise that most of these people became radicalised in Western countries. You know, the point when they journeyed to Syria was the point when they had already embraced militant Islam. So it seems to me that there's a responsibility that we have to take. These Kurdish groups are themselves under severe pressure. On one side, they've got Turkey that would rather they didn't exist. On the other side, you still have the Assad government in power. So if we reach a stage where the Kurds are no longer able to secure those ISIS prisoners, and of course, radicalisation will continue because they're living in fairly desperate circumstances in these camps, and that results in ISIS regaining strength and recruits, we've only ourselves to blame. They want to get rid of these prisoners, of course, but most of the European states were not willing to take back their citizens. And they are not able to do any legal procedures with these prisoners. And they have to be provided with food and with health care. Thomas Schmidinger is a political scientist who teaches at the University of Vienna. His fieldwork has frequently taken him to the Kurdish-run camps where Europeans are currently being detained. It's really difficult for the Kurdish Red Crescent, for example, to guarantee at least a minimum of health care in these camps. Is that just because the Kurds didn't really have the resources to be able to cope with so many prisoners? Of course, they don't have the resources for that. And they definitely don't have the resources to judge them. So the only thing would be either to keep them in these prison camps for years and to see another generation raised in these prison camps or to let them out one day. There is no legal process at the end of this detainment. The Kurds are trying to hold thousands of people, many of them dangerously radicalised, in overcrowded camps. Uh, Self-administration of north and eastern Syria is the only territory in Syria where they abandoned uh, capital punishment. There is no death sentence there. 
So what shall they do? They cannot shoot these people. They have to deal with it somehow. We cannot possibly expect the Syrian Kurds to be able to deal with someone like Shamima Begum, who's British, who clearly, when she was in Britain, she was being groomed and at that point made the decision to travel to Syria. If we can't sort of understand our own responsibility in her story, it seems to me that we're never going to understand the challenge of radicalization. The Kurds can't cope with the scale of the problem. Hundreds of people are escaping from the camps every year, and eventually, it's a problem that will come knocking on Europe's door. So what should we do about it? Every country in Europe is struggling to decide, and everyone has a different approach. When we're talking about the problems of Islamist terrorism in Europe and France, I think one just has to bear in mind how hard France has been hit on all levels by this problem. Peter Conradi is the Sunday Times Europe editor, and he's based in Paris. Among the countries of Europe, France had the highest number of citizens who left to join Islamic State. According to recent figures, there are around 400 French men, women and children currently detained in Syria and Iraq. Back in 2016, there were around 1,900 French citizens living inside the caliphate. France has suffered the most of any European country from Islamist terrorism in the past few years. We have the Annus Horribilis of 2015, which began with the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo magazine and a Jewish supermarket in which 17 people died, and then concluded at the end of the year with the multiple attacks on the Bataclan, the Stade de France, in which another 130 people died. And that's made a huge, huge mark on France and on, on French society. And more recently, we've had the horrific decapitation last month of Samuel Paty, a teacher, by an Islamist, uh, followed a couple of weeks later by the murder of three people in and around a church in Nice. So it, it's, it's really a very, very big issue for France, probably more so than for any other European country. And in France, have foreign fighters been a big problem? How many people seem to go off and join Islamic State? And what's happening to them now? Are they being allowed to come back? A lot of people went from France, certainly compared with other European countries, to fight in Syria and the surrounding area. It's partly because France has a very large Muslim population, about five to six million, the biggest in Europe. So in a sense, there was a big pool of people to draw on. A lot of them are of North African origin. A lot of them were or do live in quite poor circumstances in France, which again has helped their radicalisation. And what's been happening to them as they come back? Have they been allowed to come back? Very, very few of them have been allowed to come back at all. I mean, I have never seen any official figures that have been published on that, but I, I've also not seen any cases written about of foreign fighters that have been allowed to come back. The French position is very much that they should remain there and if they're going to be put on trial, which they have to be eventually, that they should be put on trial in Iraq. But the French government, it is just too toxic to have them back in France. It's a very political issue also because President Macron is trying to 
appear tough on the Islamists. He's got uh, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far-right National Rally, formerly the National Front, snapping at his heels. Nous sommes attaqués sur notre territoire, que l'islamisme nous mène la guerre. Il faut assumer cela. That's Marine Le Pen, leader of the right-wing Front National Party, speaking in the aftermath of the terror attack in Nice. She says France is under attack again and Islam is waging war on the country. Her rhetoric is pushing President Macron into a corner. He has to keep these people essentially out of France, not least because France has already got, by their own admission, a large number of suspected Islamists in jail. I mean, according to the latest statistics, France has a total prison population of just over 61,000. Of those, there are just over 500 who are described as Islamic terrorists. That is, they've either been convicted of Islamist crimes or they're on pretrial detention. And there are another 509 who've been described as susceptible to radicalization. So that means there's just over a thousand people in jail in France who are considered by the authorities to be dangerous. And for that reason, they don't really want any more, even more dangerous ones coming in from Syria or from Iraq. And what is the French approach towards de-radicalisation? I mean, is that something that they believe in? Uh, Their policy has been evolving over the years. The jury, in a sense, is still out as to how effective it is. But essentially, if one takes the, the thousand or so prisoners who are considered to be dangerous or or susceptible to being radicalised. What has been going on in the past few years is that they are put through a series of evaluation cells or evaluation centres, which have been set up in the past few years. And essentially what happens is that they take groups of prisoners, about 12 or so at a time, and for 15 weeks or so, this is how long the process takes, they are assessed by psychologists, probation officers, uh, people that help with rehabilitation, people in the education field, so a variety of different experts. Over the course of the 15 weeks, participants are analysed and a decision is taken on how dangerous they're thought to be. Three quarters of them are considered fine. They can be put back into the normal jail with their fellow prisoners. About 10% of them are considered so dangerous that they're just put in solitary confinement and essentially just left to their own devices, which leaves about 15% who are then put into different kind of uh, unit, which is uh, essentially kind of a de-radicalization unit. And there they spend a minimum of six months, and in most cases considerably longer than that, being de-radicalised, or that's the idea. I mean, according to someone involved with the project, the idea is to strengthen critical thinking, to get them to disengage from violent action, to challenge the kind of Islamist narratives that they might have, to try and fight these kind of conspiratorial visions of history, which are held by a number of such people. I think it's very difficult to, to say at this stage how successful this process is. I mean, a number of them have been there for more than 18 months or so. It's clearly a very, very long process. But the idea is that somehow, at the end of it, they will emerge de-radicalised with what is considered to have been the brainwashing that they've undergone in the years before being kind of reversed, and they'll be turned, it's hoped, into 
model citizens. You know, it is a complicated process and it's not so easy to change people's worldview. So that's the situation in France, but what about the rest of Europe? We'll look at lessons from Austria and Denmark in just a moment, but for more foreign coverage, get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In this series, Bring Me Home, we've been looking at the difficult issues around the case of Shamima Begum. Should people who left Britain to join Islamic State be stripped of their citizenship? Or should they be brought back home? Can they be de-radicalised if they do return? In this episode, we wanted to see how the rest of Europe is approaching the problem. Well, in Austria, first of all, they would all face justice. That's Thomas Schmidinger from the University of Vienna again. He's written a report for the Austrian government on de-radicalisation in Austrian prisons. As he explains, the 12 Austrians who are currently being held in Syrian camps would inevitably end up in prison if they returned. Because we have a relatively strict law according to membership of a terrorist organisation, every person that went even to live in the so-called Islamic State would be a member of a terrorist organization. There's no need to prove that this person actually fought. All of these adults would go into prison for some years. 
And then the big question is what happens in the prisons? So there are some minor de-radicalization. It's not a really a program. In Austria, a private company contracted by the Ministry of Justice is responsible for de-radicalization in prisons. Its approach is based on discussions about religion. In our studies, we found out that this helps with some of the prisoners, especially with some of the younger prisoners that are not that much ideologized, but it does not help for all the prisoners. And definitely much more quantity and quality is needed if you seriously want to de-radicalize these prisoners. Alarmingly, Thomas's study found that for inmates, prison can be just as much a radicalizing experience as a place for de-radicalization to happen. If they feel that they are treated fairly, that they are treated equal to other prisoners, this can lead to some respect for the rule of law and the, the democratic state. However, if they feel that they are treated in a completely unfair way. This fits with the narrative of the jihadists that the secular state is fighting them because they are Muslims and not just terrorists. For example, one of the persons I made an interview with in the Austrian prison told me, I got my first Christian friend here in the prison and I was surprised that he's a human like me, and I asked myself if it's really good, if I really should cut off the head of such people because they are also humans. His interaction with another inmate was a, a door to a de-radicalization process. Scenes of chaos in central Vienna as frightened crowds fled a series of gunshots. Several people were killed after an unknown number of armed suspects opened fire at six different crime scenes. Earlier this month, four people were killed and 23 injured by an ISIS sympathizer in the Austrian capital, Vienna. The attacker, it turned out, had spent eight months in prison for extremism and he'd taken part in a de-radicalization program whilst he was there. The head of this association said in public that he never claimed that the guy is de-radicalized. So at the end of the day, no uh, reintegration program for no criminal in the world does work in every case. So there are failures. Even if we would have a better de-radicalization program in prison, we will have failures in the future. And on those de-radicalization programs, I mean, what do you think the Austrian ones need to be much better than they are now? First of all, I think de-radicalization is a multifactorial process. So religion does not play the sole or the central role in radicalization. There are much more psychological and social reasons for radicalization. So we would need to approach these persons in de-radicalization programs also with more psychological and social programs and not only with religious pedagogy. 
But again, you would still have the question what to do with the people where it does not work. In my opinion, the idea of the Austrian government that was now presented to put them in prison as long as they want would be completely counterproductive because this would again nourish this narrative of the jihadists that the rule of law is just fake and that the secular state is prosecuting Muslims and so on. Austria has struggled with the problem of de-radicalization, but some countries in Europe seem to have had more success. Next, we head to Aarhus in Denmark, to a little building attached to the local police station called the Info House. Denmark has a similar number of detainees in Syria as Britain, with an estimated 28 men, women and children currently living in camps. The info house is basically a building attached to the police station. From the outside, it looks like a house. And once you walk through the door, the first thing you see is a reception area that pretty much looks like as if it's like a GP or a dentist sort of reception area, very casual. Dr. Neda Richards is a counterterrorism psychologist who studied Denmark's de-radicalisation model. Once you enter the meeting room or the interview rooms, it basically looks like as if you've entered into someone's living room. There's a dining table and sofa, plants, bookshelves. It's very homely. There is this feeling that it's detached from the authorities once you go into that room. And they have a lot of their meetings with the extremists and their families in that room. The Info House is the focal point of what they now call the Aarhus model for de-radicalisation. The first one opened in Aarhus in 2011 and similar forums have sprung up around the country in the last decade. The Aarhus model is... A multi-agency approach that is looking at de-radicalisation and prevention a lot more holistically. They're trying to use various different aspects to deal with a problem. So you're working with the police, the social services, the prison services, schools, healthcare providers, mental health. The dialogue is never about trying to prove the individual wrong in terms of how they think, what they think. Really? Yes. So the idea is that you can have your views and I have mine and that's okay. We can respect that. But what is a healthy way for you to reach what you want to do without committing any crime? So if it's, for example, let's say it's jihad, what it is that jihad means? And, you know, they have mentors trying to speak to these individuals to identify exactly what jihad means. And say, okay, well, you know, for you to be able to do a jihad, you don't need to go to Syria. Engaging in jihad doesn't have to mean engaging in a holy war in the Middle East. It can refer to an internal struggle. You can do it right here in Denmark through 
another way of dealing with, let's say, socioeconomical factors that is over here. You can do it this way. And in fact, one of the ex-extremists that work with the Info House as a mentor, he was considering to go to Syria, but he changed his mind after he spoke to his mentor about what it means to do a jihad and how that meant that he can actually reform what he's trying to fight, which is he felt isolated and he felt attacked and he felt like he was being looked at as a terrorist because he was a Muslim. And he decided to take matters in his own hand and basically work with the counterterrorism prevention officers and trying to mentor the next generation of extremism, if that makes sense. Because for him, it was all about making sure the injustice didn't happen again. That's his own form of jihad. That was his form of jihad, yes, because he thought the way he was being treated was wrong. And it was. And it was the way he was looked at as a terrorist. He felt like, okay, well, if you think I'm a terrorist, then I'll show you what a terrorist is. It was just basically taking that narrative and changing it and say, well, actually, you can change that, but you can do it this way. What it is they want to do, it's wrong. It's not about wrong or right per se. It's about how he can do it in a healthy way within a society whilst holding those beliefs. I mean, you might not necessarily agree with them, but it's about making sure that he as an individual can live healthy life and a happy life in a society. The Info House has managed to build up enough trust within communities that they're sometimes tipped off by family members who are worried about their siblings or their children becoming radicalised and travelling to war zones. This is something that we are still struggling here in the UK with. Just about 5% are reported by their own families, whereas in Denmark, between 2011 and 2017, approximately 63% of the reports were made by their family members. Those are the numbers it would be lovely to see here in the UK because family members are the ones that spot these signs of radicalization first. But if you don't have any support, you won't be able to know what to do. You won't be able to help the individual to see the reality for themselves, if that makes sense. How does it work? Can you talk me through any examples where you've sort of seen it working? So one was the wife of a well-known extremist who was basically a jihadi herself. She ended up reporting her two sons to stop them from traveling to Syria. Wow. So when you see that level of engagement with an extremist or an ex-extremist, especially one that is married to a very high-profile extremist herself, calling and reporting her own sons to prevent them from travelling to Syria. I think that's pretty big, especially when you're talking about returning fighters. Can they be rehabilitated? Until 2016, Danish foreign fighters returning from Syria could enter Denmark freely and join de-radicalisation programmes. So one of the foreign fighters comes back The parent picks up the phone and says, my son is here, can you come see him? They go and speak to the son very casually again over a cup of coffee, tell him that this is the exit program that we have. 
We would like you to go through that. We will help you to find a job if you want to go back to university. We want to be able to give you a good life. You know, the whole psychology of having a good life. And they work with different agencies to tailor make a support system for this individual. And once the individual is rehabilitated, then the engagement is mellowed down, but it's never disconnected. So they're always in touch in some way or form, whether it's with the family, whether it's with the individual. And that's really important to make sure that your presence is still felt. In 2016, a new law was passed making foreign fighting illegal. So although foreign fighters can still return, they face prison sentences when they do. I think we should take the psychological approach for sure. And that is because we as humans interact based on, are you in my group or are you outside of my group? Are you going to hurt me or are you going to be someone that I can trust and not fear? And those pull and push factors will help the individual come closer to the authorities and report or it will push them back. And it's all about empathy. You need to be empathetic towards these individuals and genuine. And that's what they see. The approach has even converted critics Neda has been speaking to one of the officers at InfoHouse. He's worked in crime prevention for over 30 years. The practitioner in Denmark, he is very honest. He says, I completely disagree with what they do. And in fact, I sit on the right side of a political spectrum. But for me, helping these individuals and making sure that they take the right approach in terms of what they want to achieve without committing a crime. It means that I'm not only helping them, but also I'm helping my community, my country. Tomorrow, in the last of our series, Bring Me Home, we'll look at the case at the Supreme Court. Should Shamima Begum be allowed to come back to Britain to fight for her citizenship? If you were to go and join a terrorist organisation, then that's a criminal offence under Terrorism Act 2000. There are other issues there that are specific and unique to Shamima Begum and her classmates who went out in that they were children. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the former head of the Foreign Office Counter-Radicalisation Programme, Arthur Snell, Thomas Schmidinger from the University of Vienna, Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi, and counter-terrorism psychologist, Dr Nader Richards. The producers today were Asia Fuchs and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can please do leave us a review. If you want to get in touch with any of your thoughts, you can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow for part five. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.